happy Cinco de Mayo to all of my listeners here in ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. I'm glad to have you along. Boy, I tell you what, this is one of my favorite holidays. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am and that we're all enjoying it safely. But we're glad to have you along here in ESPN-UP, wherever it is you may be tuned in from. I tell you what, we got a lot, of, a lot of fun to have here on today's show. I've got Forrest Carr, the Northern Michigan Athletic Director, joining me here on the ESPN-UP makeshift phone line here in about 15 minutes. Plus, I'm going to talk to you about a little NFL. I've got some power rankings that ESPN came up with. You know, Some of it I agree with, some of it... I've got a problem with. I'm going to tell you about that. Plus, I was on the clock last night at 1 a.m. I was working at 1 a.m. last night, and I can say I've not really done that before. I'm going to tell you why I was on the clock after midnight last night or early morning, I guess, here in ESPN-UP. I'm going to tell you why here over the course of the next hour. Plus, who is the deepest team at quarterback in the NFL after this weekend's events, I'm going to tell you who that is and who should be in the conversation over the course of next hour. But what I want to start with is by talking about The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary that has come out here over the last couple of weeks. And it's taken America by storm while we're still waiting for live sports, what have you. Episodes five and six came out on Sunday. And I tell you what, this might have been my favorite so far, this part of the series. You know, and it's not because of how it started, but I do want to touch on how it started because episode five started with the uh, caption that said, in loving memory of Kobe Bryant or something to that effect. And you knew that, oh boy, we are in for a long road of emotion, of, you know, good memories to look back on, but still sadness, hurt that's going to come with it. We knew that was coming up. And Michael Jordan was such a competitor, such the, uh, you know, he was the ultimate competitor to the point where he would not let any other athlete in, not into his inner circle, not into his private life. He wasn't out to make you his enemy, but he wasn't out to make you his friend either. He had friends within the league. You know, he, he talked about in that episode playing cards with Magic Johnson. He golfed with Larry Bird, as we saw in Space Jam. But very few athletes would ever be close to him. Any Anyone who was not his teammate would very rarely be close to him. But Kobe Bryant pierced that wall. He pierced that wall that Michael Jordan put up. And Kobe Bryant looked at Michael like his big brother, like he said in the episode. And it all started when Kobe was the youngest All-Star to you know ever be nominated to the game back in uh, 1999 when the All-Star game was held in New York. And Kobe waited outside the locker room for MJ. And MJ just kind of took him under his wing. And that's something that MJ didn't do for really any other player at the time. And you've heard of Kobe say it. He said it in the episode. Uh, the late, great Kobe Bryant said, I don't get to five titles without Michael Jordan. You know, and it got me thinking here. I want to go on a little bit of a backstory before I tell you what it got me thinking here. Um, and I apologize if I go down the rabbit hole because I tend to do that. But let me start with this. Let me start by saying this. Later in that episode, which was episode five of The Last Dance, the 10-part series, that they went on to detail the dream team, the 1992 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team. Let me go down the rabbit hole just for a little bit to get you started. I grew up in a small northwest Iowa town of about 13,000 people. 
And in that small town, there was a sports collectible shop. I don't even know if it's still there. I hope it is. Uh, but I remember when I was a kid growing up, I loved going to that shop. It was what it was on Main Street. It was what my hometown would call Main Street. And they sold sports memorabilia, jerseys, action figures, comic books, uh, old coins, stuff like that. And it was just the coolest place. I loved it. I, I even remember last time I was in that store. The last time I was in that store, I was wearing a throwback Chicago Blackhawks alternate jersey. That <laughs> uh, It was weird. It, that's a funny story in of itself. My mother bought me that jersey from that store. And they sold it to her by mistake. And I unknowingly wore it into that store. And they told me that they sold it to her by mistake, but, you know, they were going to let it go. And I said, okay, thank you for that, because, you know, it's a really cool Chicago Blackhawks. It's a black alternate throwback Chicago Blackhawks jersey. It was really cool. Either or, it's a sports collectible shop in my little small Iowan hometown. And I go in there one day when I'm 10 years old. I had just been overnight at a friend's house, and, you know, we had our sleepover and everything, and, you know, that was the thing to do when you were in middle school. So the next day, we went to this sports collectible shop, and there's always been cool stuff in there. I mean, you know, I mentioned the last time I was in that store, what I was wearing, what I bought was one of those little hockey games where, you know, you've got the guys on the levers, kind of like foosball, and it's like hockey guys, and, you know, you play with it that way. It's one of those old-timey games. You know, I bought that maybe my junior year in college and that was the last time I was in that store well I remember one particular morning that I was there after a sleepover at a friend's house when I was like 10 years old and I go into that store and I see this set of action figures and I was a big action figure guy when I was a kid you know I loved action figures uh, I still think you know if I don't play with them I still think you know they're cool and everything they can be used for decorations and I I do use them to decorate my office back when I was in the office and now I have them out here while I'm working from home I have them on my countertop but I saw this set of action figures of the 1992 Olympic men's basketball team the dream team uh, they were only missing Clyde Drexler and Christian Leitner and I don't know why that was because it came in perfect packaging and everything but perfect packaging didn't matter to me because man I was 10 years old I was a kid I wanted to play with these things and <laughs> and they were fun man they were I, I got a lot of joy out of these action figures when I was a kid and as I talk to you right now here in ESPN UP I've got these action figures spread out before me I put a few uh, pictures on social media last night but I've got these dream team action figures set out before me because of some of the great memories that they gave me through my childhood and man this honestly could be the team that was the greatest team of all time I mean they were dominant they won every game by what 30 something points if not more and they never used a timeout during their time in the Barcelona Olympics I mean this team was absolute dominance and it's one of my favorite sports teams of all time you know it's I'm proud as an American that they were able to represent me, even though <laughs> I wasn't born yet. Uh, and at the same time, they were able to assert that level of dominance around the world. It, it makes me so proud, and I, I love that team, even though I never got to see them play 
live, whether it be in person or on TV. But I do have the reaction figures, and I tell you what, I had to dig deep in my closet, deep in, <laughs> deep in my childhood memories, and I found this group. And man, this group is still so special to me. And it's, you know, for more reasons than, uh, you know, over the course of the last month or so, uh, my childhood dog, my best friend of 14 years, passed away, and uh, and when he was a puppy, he chewed on the stand that supports the John Stockton action figure. So, I have trouble standing up the John Stockton action figure of this uh, 1992 Dream Team set, you know. But it's one of those things that you know I'm always going to cherish because even though that stand is chewed to the point where <laughs> John talks. Uh, Stockton's action figure can barely stand. Uh, it reminds me of my pup, who, again, recently passed away after 14 years of being my best friend. And uh, it, It's memories like that that make it special. But, you know, I look at this team, and it's always been one of my favorites. Even before, you know, last couple of months, before The Last Dance came out, it, just because of what they were able to do, the way they were dominant in Barcelona back in 1992, this has always been one of my favorite sports uh, teams of all time, really, of anything. Um, and I, it, it's special to me that as I record the show, I've got these figures out here in front of me that, you know, I've got this action figure set I used to play with when I was a kid. I, they, they came in the box, but, man, I was 10 years old. I didn't care if they were going to appreciate value or whatever. As I got older, I wanted to play with them. So, <laughs> so I did, and they brought me many years of joy when I was a child. And uh, I thought, you know what? I better dig deep in my closet for a show like this and uh, get them back out. And I get it. I'm late on this. I'm a day late. But the uh, the uh, Jordan documentary and his feud with Isaiah Thomas uh, gave me a good reason to bring these guys back out. So when you talk about the last dance and how it relates to the 1992 Dream Team, the U.S. Olympic men's basketball team, that competed in Barcelona. They easily won the gold medal. And again, they never even called a timeout. They were that good, winning every game by 30 points. Man, I think about the history of this team and all the backstories from it. And you know what? Uh, one of the backstories I get was why were guys like Isaiah Thomas, Dr. J, uh, Clyde Drexler, Shaquille O'Neal, who was just beginning his uh, career in the NBA, a very promising career in the NBA, why were they not included on the initial roster? You know, the initial roster had guys like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Scottie Pippen. You knew who was going to play the majority of the minutes for the U.S. national basketball team, but you were wondering, who's going to take up those 9 through 12 spots on the roster? Who's going to be some of the guys that we get sub in, you know, late in the game and everything? And a lot of the conversation revolved around those guys, the, the Wilkins, the Worthies, the O'Neills. Instead, Team USA decides to go with John Stockton, Chris Mullins, Christian Leitner, guys like that. Clyde Drexler eventually was added to the roster. He wasn't on the original roster, but was added on later. Isaiah Thomas, though, may have been the most notable exception. I, I bring up Isaiah Thomas. I want to specifically point to him. Because Isaiah Thomas, as talented as he was, I said on the show last week, he was kind of the Lex Luthor of basketball at the time. You know, he was extremely talented, great at what he did, but he was the villain. He was the guy that people didn't like, people didn't appreciate. He was the bad boy. He was the ultimate bad boy. 
of the Bad Boy Pistons. And he had beef with about everybody on that Olympic team. He had beef with Pippen, with Magic, with Bird, and he especially had beef with Michael Jordan. Michael and Isaiah Thomas's feud was maybe more public than anybody. And they all said, you know, from a talent aspect, sure, Isaiah Thomas meets the criteria. From a camaraderie, a chemistry aspect, absolutely not. There is no way any of us, uh, probably nobody on this team, wants Isaiah Thomas to compete for the U.S. Olympic team. Yeah, I tell you what, the, uh, the narrative that's been pushed for a long time, and I know it's been pushed by more than just Isaiah Thomas or Big John Thompson, who later went on to be the head coach at Georgetown, the narrative was that Isaiah Thomas was pushed off the team for racial reasons because the U.S. reportedly, uh, Isaiah Thomas and uh, Big John Thompson said, we don't want the U.S. to be represented by 11 black guys and Larry Bird. That was reportedly what Isaiah Thomas and Big John Thompson felt. Was that true? I don't know. I don't know that any of us are ever going to know what that is. But either way, a guy like Isaiah Thomas, who was probably talented uh, more so than John Stockton to Chris Mullins and Christian Leitner, was passed up. Now, the big question has got to be whether was that a, a thing of racial ambiguity or racial insensitivity or was that because of team chemistry? Well, th the narrative's always going to be about team chemistry. I don't know if anything racial had to do with it. If I had to guess, uh, maybe it played a factor into it with some of the committee members. I don't know. I really don't know. But Isaiah Thomas was not a guy who got along with most of the team. Have you ever seen the movie Semi-Pro? I mean, you ever watch that part? You, you remember that part where... Uh, Woody Harrelson's character comes in. He's the new point guard for the team. They trade for him to try and get into the postseason. And Woody Harrelson's character is somebody who's fought or broken bones with almost everybody on that team. But they bring him in, you know, so they can, so they can win because he would help them win. And that's kind of what Isaiah Thomas was to the Dream Team, except they didn't need him to help them win. Isaiah Thomas was a guy who broke and burned about every bridge prior to that, you know, that 1992 Olympics. And the Dream Team said, you know, we don't need you to win. So could there have been racial profiling in there that guys like Wilkins and Thomas and O'Neill and Worthy weren't selected? Maybe. I'm not here to comment on that. I'm, I'm just saying what the narrative was. I don't know if that was a factor or not. But I, and, and the other thing is I'm not trying to take away from the legacy of Stockton and Mullins and Leitner because they were all phenomenal players and guys that are rightfully going to have their place among basketball's greats. But I want to lay out the groundwork here in the sense that MJ did not care what the color of his teammate's skin was. He didn't care if he was going to Barcelona with 11 black guys and Larry Bird, or he didn't care if he was going to Barcelona with or without Isaiah Thomas or four other white guys. I don't know. MJ didn't care about that because MJ was the ultimate competitor. And that's what I really want to take away from these last couple of episodes and really from the entire series. MJ wanted to prove he was the best. And you saw that later on in episode five when Tony Kukoc, who was a, a prodigy that was drafted from Yugoslavia and currently uh, he was born in uh, what's modern day Croatia. Tony Kukoc was being 
heralded by Jerry Krause, the team general manager, as the future of the Chicago Bulls, not the guy who was winning championships for them right now. So Jordan and Pippen, who were members of the Bulls on that USA team, took offense to that in the two games they played Croatia in that 92 Olympic uh, tournament. They absolutely went out to destroy Tony Kukoc. And they did, at least in game one. In game two, I mean, Kukoc was fine, but they still, uh, the U.S. still went on to have a decisive victory and win the gold medal. But this was a, a guy who was so competitive that he wanted to prove to everyone he was the best. He wasn't chasing anyone or anything. Uh, Kobe, like you heard him say in the uh, in the in the tape of episode five of the Last Dance before he passed away, he said, "Man, I would not have five championship rings without Michael Jordan. Jordan was that mentor to him. LeBron James, throughout his entire career, has been chasing MJ. He's been trying to get on MJ's level. MJ was chasing nobody. MJ was chasing nothing but perfection." the unobtainable goal of perfection. And nobody told MJ that perfection was unobtainable. MJ just felt like it was somehow. And we all know as humans that we're not perfect. MJ felt like there was a way he could obtain perfection. And he was doing his darndest as a player to do that. And nobody, ain't nothing, no how, was stopping him, was getting in his way. MJ was all about being a perfectionist. He had nobody that he was trying to get to as far as the bar in the NBA. There was no bar in the NBA after that point. The bar right now, do you want to be like Mike or do you want to be like LeBron James? There was nothing like that when MJ was there. For MJ, the bar was perfection. And that's why Michael Jordan was the basketball player that he was. Now, there was a part of that last segment that aired on Sunday that talked about some political issues, talked about the 1990 North Carolina Senate race between Gant and Helms. Gant was the first African-American, or he would have been the first African-American to be a senator in North Carolina, Michael Jordan's home state. And Michael Jordan, despite all kinds of pressure, unwavering pressure, did not endorse Charles Gant, because, and he said this kind of a, kind of in jest, although it was taken the wrong way. He said, Republicans buy Nikes too, which was the shoe company he was sponsored by. He didn't want to endorse a Democrat candidate for Senate because Republicans buy shoes too. Now, the closest cop to MJ we can come up with would be LeBron James, a guy who's not at all afraid to throw his hat in the political ring, hosting fundraisers for the likes of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And whether you agree with that or not, that's irrelevant. The fact is, LeBron James is willing to make himself a political figure. Michael Jordan said that, I don't think of myself as an activist. I think of myself as a basketball player. And whatever your thoughts are on that, because I know Jordan lost a lot of supporters when he would not endorse Charles Gant, and Jesse Helms went on to win re-election. I know Jordan lost a lot of supporters on that. But to me, MJ became the most popular person in the world, especially in the early 90s. He was a guy who was 
known around the world and beloved around the world. People wanted to be like Mike. And Nike wasn't only able to sell their product, they were able to sell Americana. They were able to sell the American lifestyle because Michael Jordan made that popular. Because he was such an inner-beloved, internationally loved, worldwide figure. LeBron James has gone down the path where he wants to be more of an activist. He wants to take stands on stuff, and that's fine. I'm not saying I have an issue with that. I'm not telling LeBron James to shut up and dribble. But I'm saying there's the difference in that sense between LeBron and Michael Jordan. And that, I think, is where we get the most diversity, where we have bigger factions between not just if LeBron or Jordan was better, but what they stand for. Was that better? Was LeBron being political, being somewhat divisive, although he stood for some causes that people are very passionate about? Was that better? Or was Jordan being apolitical, being a distraction from things, being a, a guy who was just a basketball player? Was that better for American society? I think that's where we get more of a divisiveness rather than is Jordan or MJ better? Would they Who would win in a one-on-one -on -one contest? To me, that was my biggest takeaway from the latest segment from The Last Dance. I tell you what, we are coming up on our first break. Let's take that now. When we come back, I'm going to talk with Northern Michigan Athletic Director Forrest Carr, and we will talk about some awards that came out at Northern yesterday, plus a look ahead to this fall next on ESPN-UP. Attention small business owners in the Upper Peninsula. We know that being a small business owner was challenging before COVID-19, and now as uncertain economic times unfold, there are new concerns. Please visit www.update906.com for resources to support you, including a UP-based team to help navigate programs designed to help support businesses. Update906.com is your trusted resource. Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoop. appreciate you taking the time first and foremost i like to get some guests on here and talk about some ways that they're spending the off time the time in the quarantine i've heard a lot of video games puzzles stuff like that but i'm sure it's a lot of work for you i mean you you've got a lot of scheduling conflicts and trying to work everything out hopefully we get everything going on time in the fall i'm sure uh, it's kept you pretty busy throughout all this oh, yeah there's no shortage of things to do we're uh just trying to plan for a lot of different scenarios. So it's been an, uh, an interesting time, and um, there's been some challenges, but some good things as well. Well, with the university planning to reopen for the fall face-to-face -face classes, is that kind of the same way with sports? Do you plan right now everything starts on time or just kind of take it as it goes? Yeah, we need to wait uh, for guidance, you know, because the things that we do don't just depend on our own decisions. You know, we're obviously – partners in a lot of ways with all the schools that we um, compete against and, and work together with. So we, uh, you know, need guidance from the NCAA, um, uh, the various conferences that we're part of. And then for non-conference games, we're, of course, working together with other institutions. So, you know, we'll, we'll get things sorted out over the next few weeks, I think. 
Well, Forrest, I wanted to talk to you about some of the Team of the Year awards that came out here over the weekend. And let's start with Team of the Year. Uh, the Northern uh, Women's Swim te- swim and Dive Team ended up winning that uh, that honor. And I'll let you go over their accolades. But, I mean, they had an outstanding season. Tell me about why they were the recipient this year. Well, uh, you know, their accomplishment winning the GLIAC Championships for the first time in 17 years was, you know, it was a uh, it, it was impressive, uh, mainly because we have such a strong swimming and diving conference, you know, year after year, Grand Valley and Wayne State and, and our program recently are, are all teams that finish in the top 15 at the NCAA championships and, and could win uh, most division two conferences around the country. So we have great uh, competition with them and uh, it takes a really special team with a lot of depth and a lot of talent to be able to win. And, and uh, this team came together at the right time. Oh, and then you have your Seniors of the Year awards on the male side, uh, Phil Ballou of the hockey team, Grandpa Tony Coles of Mr. Everything, and then Caitlin Smith of the cross-country team on the women's side. Tell me about those two and how uh, what went into that uh, that recognition. Well, the Gildo Canale Senior Award um, is, is there to recognize kind of a, a well-rounded individual who, who does everything the right way. So we talk about somebody who's, uh, excellence in, in their uh, field of competition, but but also in the classroom, um, as a team leader, as a community volunteer, um, somebody who really makes a difference uh, during their four years here. And both Phil and, and Caitlin um, meet all those criteria and, and more. They're just uh, exceptional people and exceptional student athletes, and it was great to see them have uh, good senior years, but it's not surprising because they've done things the right way their whole time here. Overall Athlete of the Year award on the male side, Lajos Budai, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, of the uh, swim and dive team. Tell me about his accomplishments. Yeah, Lajos is uh, somebody who came here in our second year of our reconstituted men's swimming and diving program, and uh, right away it was it was noticeable. Um, you know, his, his kind of uh, natural ability. Uh, I think his freshman year he won four different events at the GLIAC Championships, and was not only the freshman swimmer of the year at the GLIAC Championships, but also the overall swimmer of the year. So. Right from the time he came in, he was an exceptional athlete, and he was incredibly consistent. You know, he won the 100-yard freestyle race, which is one of the kind of premier races at the GLIAC Championships four years in a row, um, qualified for the NCAA Championships every year, and, and, and really, I think, in a lot of ways, helped put the program on the map that we were doing this in a way that we wanted to be competitively excellent. And uh, and I think, you know, his accomplishments helped us recruit others and uh, the program's in a really good place uh, in part because of him. On the women's side of things, Jessica Schultz of the women's basketball squad, obviously she had a tremendous year and a tremendous career here at Northern. Tell me about her accolades. Well, Jessica um, kind of did this year what you always hope for for student athletes. You hope that they'll come in and continue to get better each year and get more and more playing time and um, contribute um, more and more and have more success. And, you know, I, I thought last year in the uh, the GLIAC tournament and uh, the two games in the NCAA tournament that she was a, a real contributor and uh, it was apparent that she was stepping into this kind of leadership role and that as a senior that she would have a lot of success. And, she certainly didn't uh, disappoint. She had some really, really memorable games this year. I think of one um, at home against Purdue Northwest where 
uh, she was just really unstoppable. She had 36 points, and um, it was kind of back and forth where Purdue Northwest had two very good guards on their team, uh, but they didn't have an answer for Jessica, and our, our team ended up winning a close game, uh, really, uh, with her carrying uh, the weight that day. So she's uh, she's somebody that really did a nice job this year and was very deserving of the, the award, uh, similar to her teammate Darby Youngstrom last year, who won the uh, uh, female athlete of the year award for her department. So they've got a Troy's got a good system where the student athletes develop and get better and, and uh, are able to do great things as seniors. Well, and we had a few newcomers that were recognized for their outstanding seasons and three different uh, recipients with Taekwon, Spencer, and Nicola. Yep, yeah, and they they, uh, they also had um, really great years for for different reasons. Spencer is is kind of a. a a really special story that I hope um, we are able to, to, to do justice and able to tell. I mean, he's a, a young man who grew up uh, on the coast in, in uh, Alaska and um, this year qualified for the Olympic trials. And unfortunately, uh, as we all know, the, the Olympics are not being held, but um, Spencer hopefully is going to have some opportunities in the future. And uh, what a great, great young man. So he's part of our Greco-Roman wrestling program here, and I think uh, you're going to see his name for, for years to come. Um, Nicola was somebody who uh, basically took a year off from swimming, uh, came back, and was a real, real uh, contributor to the team winning the GLIAC championships this year, and it's very, very happy for her. Um, she's involved in the uh, student-athlete um, uh, council, and uh, she's involved in, in a lot of things uh, for the department, so it was great to see her do that. And Taekwon um, had a, a really nice uh, first year, and, and I would expect that uh, he'll be one of these athletes that we see a lot of great things from going forward. Play of the year was Marcus Matelski's buzzer beater to take down arch rival Michigan Tech, and uh, I tell you what, it's hard to top something like that, but obviously a very deserving moment uh, for the uh, for the award for moment of the year. Yeah, it was a great first year for, for Coach Makerzak. You know, they had these uh, three kind of signature wins, one, one on the road against Grand Valley, one on the road against Michigan Tech, and then um, the one in the playoffs against Ferris State. And those are all uh, just outstanding teams this year um, that they were able to kind of raise their level of play and, and, and end up uh, winning close games at the end. So, um, yeah, that was a, a fun moment for Marcus. He, uh, he worked uh, as kind of a – student intern in our department this year and it was certainly fun um that that next week when he was coming in to do his work and we were able to celebrate that with him that was that was fun to see well we had a few other awards including the biggest upset of the year and again northern michigan men's basketball it's one of those signature wins you were talking about taking down ferris state on the road to get to the gliac final four and that was another one of those highlights in the rookie year for matt makersack yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't there to see that one in person. I was following it on live stats and, and was able to see some of the video after the fact. But um, that, that was a, a certainly a, a great achievement. And Ferris has been a very strong program in, in recent years. And um, I think Matt's uh, doing a really good job uh, with his recruiting and some of the athletes he has coming in. So I think our fans of Northern Michigan uh, basketball have a lot to be excited about in the future. I tell you what, uh, we could go in a lot deeper in uh, the interest of time. I, I want to ask you, Forrest, what was some of uh, what made this uh, this year for Wildcat Athletics special? What, if you could, sum up uh, some of the highlights and where uh, Northern Michigan Athletics are now? 
you know, I, I mean, I think we, we talked about some of the athletic achievements. You know, we had uh, we had good years uh, for a couple of years before that as well. But I think this year the difference might have been the connection with the community. You know, we really saw a, a whole different level of community engagement from the hockey program and all the different events that they uh, were part of. Um, you know, the young man who won the Humanitarian of the Year Award here, Ryan Glover, and all the different community volunteer events he was doing um our department kind of taking a, a little bit of a, a shift in priorities and, and trying to help uh with some of these big community events and you know taking over the marquette marathon here coming up so i think i think we really um you know we, we really kind of uh changed the, the focus a little bit um to, to to really really try to emphasize how important it is for our athletes to to give back and our, our coaches and, and really be involved in the community. And I think we're starting to, to see um, where that's just becoming kind of a, a natural thing that everyone just uh, has those expectations of themselves and of their teammates. And, and uh, you know, that's a lot of fun to be part of. Forrest Carr is the director of athletics at Northern Michigan University. Kind enough to give us some time here in ESPN UP. Always great talking to you, Forrest. I appreciate the time. Stay safe and be well. Yeah, you too, Tanner. I hope that you and, and uh, your family and those close to you are all healthy and doing well. And, and, uh, and we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for all you do. Let's take a time out. More in a moment on ESPN-UP. Lawns and gardens grow better on topsoil than on rocks. Ishpeming Concrete is now open for you to get your planting season started. Get a half yard of topsoil gently loaded into your pickup truck for just 18 bucks. That's a whole lot less than the 25 bags you'd need from the home store. Sweeten up your plantings and fix your lawn from the ravages of winter. Topsoil, the softer side of Ishpeming Concrete. 400 Stone Street behind Robbins Flooring. Open weekdays 8 till 4.30. Locally owned with a total commitment to quality there's no contact paying with a credit card and you don't need to leave your vehicle marquette's big boy restaurant will be offering mother's day dinners for pickup baked ham herb roasted chicken mashed potatoes and gravy corn stuffing sweet potatoes and a dinner roll for just 12.99 for a dollar extra you can have it delivered by doordash give them a call 226-1062 it's available from 10 until 6 on mother's day at marquette's big boy restaurant Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoop. He will play a 16th NFL season. That guy just does not slow down, does not age, it seems like. Formerly Ron Artest and Metal World Peace, he has decided to undergo another name change. He will now be referred to as Meta Sandiford Artest. He revealed on Sunday in an episode of Inside the Green Room with Danny Green. So Ron Artest, Metal World Peace, and now Meta Sandiford Artest. He's doing it again. And finally, alcohol sales in the state of Michigan spiked by $15 million in the month of March 2020 as compared to March 2019. I wonder why. That is your Sports Center update. Once again, delighted to have you along this Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're celebrating Cinco de Mayo safely, but having a little bit of fun to go along with it. I tell you what, a um, couple of things I want to get to here in this segment. 
Uh, one is in regards to the NFL and depth at the quarterback position in light of the move that the Cowboys made over the weekend. But another, and that's the one I want to start with, is Korean baseball. And if <laughs> if you would have told me this weekend, even uh, a couple of days ago, that I'd be talking about Korean baseball on this show, um, I'd, I'd agree that with skepticism. Uh, but if you're like me, you want live sports. And Korea has done a wonderful job. Whatever they did, they did really well at flattening the curve quickly and efficiently in their country. And they were able to get their baseball season going last night. So if you're like me, uh, you were up at 1 in the morning watching Korean baseball on ESPN. And ESPN is going to start carrying some of these Korean baseball games, man. And that's kind of what it's gotten to is we're just looking for something with live sports. We're looking for something to entertain us. So now I need your help as I want to have a conversation here with picking a team. I feel like I need a team to really get invested in Korean professional baseball. I'm trying to get to know the KBO teams and Dan Kurtz, who covers them, uh, he covers the Korean baseball organization, put together a really nice thread on Twitter that has some facts, some pertinent information about these teams. I feel like I need to find a team. That's kind of how I felt about the XFL. I'm like, none of these teams really do it for me, but I want to be invested in the league. Well, I'm not going to miss out on this opportunity, or at least I don't want to miss out on this opportunity with Korean baseball. So I'm looking at these teams here, this list of teams, and the Seoul Kiwoom Heroes. And Dan Kurtz says that their uh, home home stadium, I guess, home stadium is the Gachuk Sky Dome. And a few notable players he lists on here, one being Byung-ho Park. Now, if you remember back in 2016, I'm a Twins fan, and my beloved Twins brought over the two-time Korean baseball MVP, which was Byung-ho Park, and it was just a disaster when he tried to make a go of it in Major League Baseball. I tried to blot out that season because almost nothing went right for Minnesota. They lost 102 games, and Byung-ho Park turned out to be a huge bust in Major League Baseball. Pretty good over in the KBO, though. Uh, by the way, they're also the only team in the league that's not owned by a large company. Their principal investor, though, the guy with the majority uh, of ownership with this team, is actually running the team from prison right now he went to prison on fraud charges and he is doing his due diligence his job uh being a team owner from prison it's kind of like the mafia a little bit it's like al capone could be locked up but he was doing his thing back in the day he might have been an alcatraz but you can't tell me al capone didn't have his uh his minions or whatever doing their thing at his direction so i don't know should i be a fan of the seal Queom heroes in byung-ho park um it's kind of a cool story but I'm going to keep going down here a little bit further. The Kia Tigers, and it's all capitals, K-I-A, Tigers. I hope that means Kia. Uh, they're from the city of Guangzhou. They have the most championships in league history with 11. They have uh, two Tigers as their mascots, uh, Hoyanan, Hoyanan and Hogioli. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. I, I'm sure I'm butchering these, but... Man, i got to find some kind of Korean baseball team here to be invested. We all do. We all do. We all need a Korean baseball team, and we're going to solve that need here in ESPN-UP. The KT Wiz, the letters KT and Wiz, they have no championships. They reside in Suwon. Um, the mascots are two wizards named Vic and Dory. Vic is some kind of black blob with a wizard hat, and Dory is a white blob with 
a wizard hat. And I tell you what, KT Wiz might be one of the front runners now here for me just because of Vic and Dory. And I look down this list, and you know what? Maybe the best way to do this is pick the best mascot because I don't know if I have anime fans out there, anime followers. I don't watch it, uh, but I know that there's several people who do, you know, like really accentuated Japanese cartoons. And that's pretty much what these mascots look like. And yeah, I probably need to find a team based on the mascot, and I'll do that at a later date. Right now, I want to talk about football, though, because over the weekend, the most significant NFL news was the fact that the Dallas Cowboys signed Andy Dalton, who was released by the Cincinnati Bengals last week. So the Cowboys bring Dalton in, the Red Rifle, back to his hometown. He obviously went to TCU from Fort Worth, and now he's playing in Dallas. So Andy Dalton is backing up Dak Prescott. Now, I, I know I'm not I, I know I said yesterday and here might have uh, drawn a little confusion I want to clarify this that I said yesterday in the show I don't believe Dak Prescott will end his career a Dallas Cowboy now did the Cowboys bring in Andy Dalton to uh, mold him to replace Dak Prescott is that the intention I don't believe it is but I do think Dak Prescott can take it that way and he's looking at him saying man I've done so much for you, and you still refuse to pay me. You paid Zeke. You've paid other guys on this team that their contracts have come up, and you keep franchise tagging me. Now you bring in another quarterback, a guy who's an NFL-level starter, and you take away more of my leverage. And to me, I, I see Dak Prescott taking that that way, although that may not have been the intent with the Cowboys. Regardless, it does give the Cowboys depth at the quarterback position. And if you listen to Will Kane, who sandwiches me here in ESPN UPs on 3 to 6 nationally elsewhere, um, Will is an avid Cowboys fan growing up in Texas. And he said a few weeks ago, man, the Cowboys have such a great roster, especially on offense. They were the top offense in football last year. But what happens if Dak Prescott goes down? What happens if you need Cooper Rush to come in and win you a game? Do you think he can do that? Now, Will was concerned about the quarterback depth or the lack thereof, uh, as he said on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he got his wish. The Cowboys went out and they added depth at the quarterback position, not only added a, a backup quarterback, but a guy who could start if need be, if it gets to that where something happens to Dak Prescott and he's not able to play. So it got me thinking, who are some teams that could stay afloat? if their starting quarterback went down. Who has a capable starting caliber backup? I did a show a couple of months ago where I ranked the backup quarterbacks around the NFL, took all 32 teams' backup quarterbacks. Because what we saw last year, we saw a couple of starting quarterbacks go down, and we saw a few teams stay afloat, and some weren't able to. We started getting a look at some of the backup quarterbacks who could be on the move this offseason and did end up go, uh, getting on the move this offseason. And we speculated during the show here a couple of months ago. I wish I could go back and find it. I can't remember for the life of me when, uh, that, when that show was. But who could survive a blow to their starting quarterback? Well, last year, uh, Teddy Bridgewater proved himself to be one of those guys, came in for an injured Drew Brees, and went 5-0 and as a start of the New Orleans Saints. That earned him the starting job with the Carolina Panthers for the coming year. The Pittsburgh Steelers had it happen to them where they had two guys come in and do an adequate job when Ben Roethlisberger was hurt. But Pittsburgh fans thought the sky was falling when Roethlisberger was hurt in week two. They had playoff aspirations, and because Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph were able to come in and do an adequate job, they kept those playoff hopes alive. 
Nick Foles went down, and Gardner Minshew got his opportunity to prove himself, and he did prove himself to be an NFL starting level quarterback, and it's earned him the title of Jacksonville's quarterback of the future. So when you look at the landscape right now in the NFL with guys moving around post the NFL draft, who do you have that same kind of confidence in right now? Which teams have depth at the quarterback position? Who has the best depth at the quarterback position? Because the Cowboys just put themselves at the forefront of that conversation. They've got a guy that I'm not saying the offense wouldn't miss a beat if something happened to Dak Prescott, but they'd be fine. Their playoff hopes wouldn't go out the window. I think the Cowboys and the Saints right now are at the top tier of that conversation. The Saints, they like having depth the quarterback position as they've proven, and they go out and they get Jameis Winston. Now, is that, you know, does that move the needle for you? I get it. There's a debate to be had there with Jameis. Is he Teddy Bridgewater? No. I, I think you can make the argument that Teddy Bridgewater is better than Jameis, and I think there's an argument to be made that Jameis is better than Teddy Bridgewater because of the upside for Jameis. Jameis has such a big upside, such a big downside. But you know what? Some coaches, Sean Payton included, are willing to take that downside if it means you get that kind of an upside. They will go down to the valley if it means it gets them to the summit. Because Jameis, for all his faults, if you could be a quarterback like Jameis is that pretty much guarantees you 400 yards and two touchdowns, but it comes with three turnovers. There's some coaches who are going to take that. And Sean Payton, who's proven that he's been a very good quarterback's coach, is willing to take that risk. Beyond that, you have Taysom Hill. Taysom Hill, a guy that you can do all sorts of stuff with. You know, he's not the elite passer that you're looking for in the NFL, but he's a Swiss Army knight that has proven himself to be extremely effective and a versatile athlete. So if you ask me, the Cowboys and the Saints are at football summit in terms of quarterback depth. Now, if we're rating their number two, if we're rating the guy who's strictly number two on the two deep, who do you like better? Do you like the Cowboys or the Saints? If I need somebody to win me one game, do I trust Andy Dalton or Jameis Winston? I'm personally going to go with Andy Dalton. I think there's a case to be made, though, depending on the team type that you have with Jameis Winston. So if we're looking at the at the two deeps, if we're saying who is the best backup in football, I'd say you probably give the Cowboys the edge. If we're talking about depth at the quarterback position overall, though, then it's the Saints. Then the Saints are the team that you're talking about because Breeze, Winston, Hill. That trumps Prescott, Dalton, and Rush. It does that for me. But who are some other teams that could be in the conversation whose starting quarterback could go down and the team season will still be alive. I think of the aforementioned Pittsburgh Steelers. We, they, they proved it. They already did it last year. They showed that they can keep their playoff hopes alive, and they did so until the final game of the season. And you know what? It wasn't necessarily quarterback play that doomed the Steelers' playoff hopes last year because Juju Smith-Schuster was not healthy for most of the year. You're playing with wide receivers that we'd never heard of. Some dude named Washington is your top wideout. Pittsburgh did a lot more with less. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, coaching and Mike Tomlin, the job that he was able to do. But I think you do got to give credit in the sense that Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph were able to keep their season alive despite the season-ending injury to Ben Roethlisberger. So Pittsburgh is a team that you can put up there in that conversation in terms of quarterback depth. Let's stay in that division. How about the Baltimore Ravens? They've got the reigning NFL MVP at their quarterback position, Lamar Jackson. Yeah, if he gets hurt, obviously you're not <laughs> going to go on without missing a beat. I mean, he is that special of a player. But 
you do get RG3, Robert Griffin III. And tell you what, he's pretty darn good. That's a pretty good option to have in your back pocket. Another guy that you can get creative with. How about the Indianapolis Colts? You've got Phillip Rivers, who's shown that he can do it at a high level for a long time. And you've got Jacoby Brissett, who, it, it, while he's inconsistent, he's shown that he can do it from time to time. That's not a bad option to have if you're Indianapolis. Sure, there are better tandems, there are better options, but that's not a bad one, Philip Rivers and Jacoby Brissett. And then you got a few wild card teams, teams that drafted a quarterback this year. We're still waiting to see how they pan out in the NFL, and that includes the Green Bay Packers. If Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, we have no idea what Jordan Love is going to bring to the table. I, you know, Packer fans hope he's not Brett Hundley, and we don't go through that situation from a few years ago, but we have no idea where Jordan Love puts the Packers on this list in terms of who's got the best too deep at the quarterback position in the NFL right now. There's the Miami Dolphins with Tua Tungabailoa and Ryan Fitzpatrick. And Fitzpatrick, if the season starts on time, is going to have to be the opening day starter because Tua's still just not going to be ready. Uh, who knows if Tua ever is going to pan out in the NFL. Same thing out in L.A. where you've got Justin Herbert coming on to battle Terod Taylor for the starting job. Who knows what you're going to get out there. And then in Philadelphia, I don't think Jalen Hurts is going to upseat Carson Wentz, but I do feel like Jalen Hurts is a guy who can play in the NFL, who can, maybe not even as a quarterback, but they can use him in a way like the Saints do with Taysom Hill. I think Philadelphia is another one of those teams that you throw into that conversation. And then I debate. I, I'm, I'm not, I didn't say debate it. I, I am currently debating where you put the Chicago Bears on this list because, yeah, they've got two quarterbacks that have had time in, as uh, starters in the NFL full-time, but does either Mitch Trubisky or Nick Foles move the needle that much for you? I don't know. I don't know that it does for me to put the Bears up there in that type of tier. Top five, I don't know. Top ten, sure, we'll put Chicago somewhere in the top ten. I tell you what, uh, as we continue to talk about some of these backup quarterbacks in the NFL and, you know, if you just ask yourself that question. If your team starter goes down, do you trust your backup to be able to keep your team season alive, get you to the postseason, give you a shot at getting to the postseason? Uh, there are only a handful of teams that can say yes. And then to what degree do you have confidence in that backup quarterback? With the Cowboys getting the red rifle and they continue that long lineage of red-haired backup quarterbacks, Garrett, Whedon, Rush, and now Dalton, the Cowboys can say more than any other NFL team that our backup quarterback gives us the best chance to win if he needs to play. If something happens to our starting quarterback, the Cowboys lay claim to that more than anybody else in the NFL. With that, let's take our last time out. When we come back, I've got some power rankings that ESPN came out with for the upcoming NFL season. I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like about them next on ESPN-UP. Since before the Mighty Mac was built, Embers has been here for the Youpers that have made this community what it is. In these challenging times, we want to say thank you to the selfless men and women that show what it means to be Youper strong. And even as we adapt, we will never stop living it up. You've been here for us, and we are here for you. We are never more than a call, click, or tap away. We're Embers Credit Union. We will get through this together. Now back to the sports pen. Here's Tanner Hoot.
the Apple iStore or Google Play. Tanner Hoops with you and delighted to have you along as we wind down this Tuesday afternoon. I've got a list in front of me that I want to share my thoughts on with you. And this came out from ESPN yesterday. They have their first power rankings since the NFL draft about a week and a half ago. So the power rankings for the upcoming season as told by ESPN. Now, I want to preface this by saying that I don't hate the list, but there's certainly some stuff I want to change, especially after the top four, because I'm pretty good with the top four. I think uh, those are all reasonable choices with Kansas City at number one, Baltimore at number two, San Fran at number three, and yeah, I guess you can put New Orleans up there at number four, considering, you know, what probably should have happened last year with them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that uh, top four, but especially the, uh, the top three with Kansas City, Baltimore, and then San Fran. And, yeah, I'm okay with New Orleans being at number four. It's after that, the rest of their top ten, that I have uh, some issues with, I take issue with, and I'll tell you why. At number five, you have the Seattle Seahawks. The Green Bay Packers are number six. Tampa Bay is seven. Eight is Tennessee. Nine is Minnesota and 10 is Dallas. Now, who shouldn't be where they are? Well, pretty much everybody, 5 through 10 on this list, I don't think is in the right place. Seattle, I mean, yeah, they were a good team last year, and they were literally an inch away from winning their division, and then who knows what happens. If they end up being the one seed in the NFC playoffs, maybe they're playing for a Super Bowl against Kansas City last year. So I get that. This offseason, though, they haven't done a whole lot, and I get Jadavian Clowney's decision factors into what uh, where they will ultimately fall here with the power rankings, what have you. But Seattle at number five, I just I don't get that vibe from them. While they're an above average team, do I think that they're a top five team? Like, are they one of the five teams that I think has the best shot at going to the Super Bowl this year? That's how I interpret this list. Who do I feel has the best shot at going to the Super Bowl? And I think those top four all do. They all check that box for me. Kansas City, Baltimore, San Fran, and New Orleans. Seattle really doesn't. And maybe they should. I just don't get that feeling from them. So I do feel like Seattle is too high. I feel like Green Bay is way too high at number six here. And I know a lot of our listeners aren't liking that or don't want to hear that. Uh, but Green Bay last year, they had a good team. They really did. But they were weak in way too many areas that were not exploited nearly enough, not as much as they should be. And teams like San Fran were able to exploit those weaknesses at the wide receiver, tight end, and defensive uh, interior defensive line positions. Good teams like San Fran were able to exploit that. And again, it comes down to the Super Bowl test. Do I really think that only five other teams have a better shot at going to the Super Bowl before Green Bay? I really don't. And the Packers failed to get better this offseason. I get it. I get it. The draft, you have optimism. We could look back in a few years and think, well, oh, man, Jordan Love was a home run draft pick. He might pan out. A.J. Dillon might pan out. Uh, maybe we'll look back on that in a few years and we'll think this is one of the greatest Packer drafts ever. But the point is they failed to get better in the immediate present they, it, right now. They failed to get better, and it's for that reason I just don't have Green Bay as one of the top six teams as far as they shouldn't be number six on uh, ESPN's power rankings for the upcoming season. Number seven is Tampa Bay. And you know what? I like that they're in the top ten. It's hard to deny the offseason they had. You upgrade with Tom Brady over Jameis Winston. You add a guy like Gronkowski. And you upgrade your offensive line. You get a guy like Tristan Wirfs. Does that really move the needle for me to the sense that they should be number seven? Maybe not. I, I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet because I'm not sure 
that they're going to win their division, first of all. And second of all, going to win more than 10 games. You have a very aged Tom Brady. He's already shown signs of regression, shown some cracks in the armor. It, it, does, does that alone move the needle for you? Because that did for a lot of people. Then they go out and they get Gronk and Tristan Wirfs, and that is what moved the needle more for me. Uh, will Tom Brady be fine in Tampa Bay? I'm sure he will, especially with Bruce Arians as his head coach. Uh, Tampa Bay, though, at number seven, I don't know about that. I like him in the top ten. I'd probably put him around nine or ten because while I do think that they're going to contend for a playoff spot this year, and they might get one of those wild card spots, I just don't think Tampa Bay is a legit Super Bowl contender. Not yet. At number eight, you have the Tennessee Titans. And you know what? I could be okay with that. They haven't done much this offseason to make me think that they're going to get a lot better. You know, this is their window. Despite being the sixth seed in the playoffs last year, they were able to get to the AFC Championship game, and they had multiple 10-point leads in that game. You think of a few things go their way, go differently. So they do go out and they get Ryan Tannehill. Uh, they re-sign Ryan Tannehill plus Derrick Henry. They want to lock him up and keep him. But otherwise, what have they done this offseason? They released a former top five draft pick, I think, from the 2014 draft. They had the fifth overall pick. and They released that, uh, that young man, that wide receiver. So while I do think their windows right now, uh, are they a top 18 for me? No. Uh, maybe top 10. I could see them maybe being top 10, but they're probably right around there with Tampa in the sense that if they have a window, it's probably right now, uh, but they haven't capitalized on that. They were fine in the draft. They didn't make any big splashes, what have you, uh, but they're a team that I'm still not confident is going to win their division nonetheless. I, I, I could see them being a top 10 team, but I don't know. I wouldn't put them at number eight. Number nine is a team that should be higher, in my opinion. That's Minnesota, a team that had an excellent draft. I'd probably give them, uh, if I'm doing my full draft grades for the entire league, I'd give Minnesota an A-. minus. Uh, they hit home runs throughout this draft. They were able to get uh, Gladney, Cleveland, Jefferson with their first three picks, and they had a really good day three. I thought they got a lot of value picks. And This is a team that was already uh, a playoff team from a year ago. They upset New Orleans, and you know they went into – San Francisco, and they ran into a buzzsaw team that ended up going to the Super Bowl. But I tell you what, the Vikings have had a really productive offseason. Now, I get the cause of concern for them is the fact that they're kind of molting their defense. They're getting rid of that old regime. They're shedding that old skin, and they're going a lot younger on defense. So that's a cause of concern. But again, Mike Zimmer is one of the better uh, defensive coaches in football. Minnesota, to me, should be higher. I feel more confident in Minnesota this year than I do with a team like Tampa Bay or Tennessee, and yeah, they're right about that tier that Green Bay's at right now. And you know, I I think it's going to be a dogfight between those two to uh, decide the NFC North because Minnesota got a lot better this off season. Green Bay didn't. Green Bay remained stagnant. So and the Packers, they might be thinking Super Bowl, but I'm I'm not confident yet that they're going to win that division. And then at number ten, there's a team that is really underrated, and that's the Dallas Cowboys. And I get this was an 8-8 eight and eight team a year ago. They've got a new coach, but the new coach is why I think they should be optimistic. And, you know, it's not the acquisition of Andy Dalton. It's the fact they had a tremendous draft. They are adding a Super Bowl champion head coach to a team that already was maybe the most talented in football last year. They had maybe the most talented roster in all of football. They did not miss out in the postseason due to lack of talent. You have Dak Prescott, who has something to prove. He's obviously got a chip on his shoulder, and if he's not trying to 
prove it to Jerry. He's trying to prove it to somebody else. He's trying to find maybe potential suitors out there elsewhere in the NFL that, you know what, this is going to be a fun year for the Cowboys. And I don't know if it's a prove-me year in Mike McCarthy's first season. I mean, maybe it is with impending free agency and contracts coming up. But, you know what, the Cowboys are a team that I think I feel more confident in that they have a chance to get to the Super Bowl than I do teams like Tampa Bay, Tennessee, and maybe even Green Bay. Honestly, that's kind of where the Cowboys are right now. They, there's a lot of reason to feel optimistic in Big D, especially with their window kind of being right now. If not this year, then it's got to be next year. Some teams that I thought should have been in the top ten that should uh, feel optimistic going into this season. I thought Philadelphia, a team that made the postseason last year, they fell in the first round. It was a one-score game. They got a lot better this offseason. They had a really good draft. They upgraded where they were weak, which was at uh, the wide receiver position. Team speed is exponentially better. They went from worst to first in terms of team speed throughout the league. So I think Philadelphia has a lot of reason to be optimistic. Again, a team that was eight points away from moving on to the second round of the playoffs. I get it. They were in a terrible division. They were uh, 9-7 and seven last year. I get that. That being said, they still have one of the more creative coaches and one of the, you know, one of the best coaches in football with Doug Peterson. They've got a quarterback that's shown that he can do it, and they obviously went out and they got weapons for him. So I think Philadelphia should have uh, been in the top ten on this list. Again, we're going through ESPN's power rankings for the upcoming NFL season after the draft a couple of uh, about a week and a half ago. Another team that I think has a case to be in the top ten is. The Houston Texans, and I get it for all their faults in the postseason. I don't. I. I don't. I'm going to go back on my uh, my earlier statement just a little bit here, where I said that for me this list is who I feel most confident in in reaching the Super Bowl. Now, do I think the Texans are going to the Super Bowl this year? No, <laughs> I really don't. Um, but that being said, I still think that they're going to be one of the better teams in the NFL throughout the regular season, the majority of the year, and they'll probably be at least a second-round playoff team. And to me, that does say top 10. To me, that kind of quality, if you win 12 games and you win a playoff game, you're in the second round of the postseason, which is, I think, the expectation for Houston. uh, To me, I think that deserves top 10 recognition. Now, obviously, losing a guy like uh, DeAndre Hopkins, I can see why that's going to knock them, you know, a little bit farther down the list. But that being said, if you ask me, I still would feel pretty darn confident in putting Houston in my uh, predictions for each divisional winner this year. I think Houston still has a legitimate case to claim the AFC South. And a few other teams that you could make the case for for being up there, Buffalo, could you say that with their defense? I'm not saying I would put Buffalo in there. I'm asking you, the audience, could you make a case for Buffalo being in the top ten in the power rankings for the upcoming season with that defense and with a capable, I should say, maybe not consistent, but capable quarterback in Josh Allen. I think you can make the case. I don't know that I do that personally, but Buffalo's another team I think had a good offseason. They got a little bit better, not exponentially, but they addressed a few needs. And then New England. I mean, guys, this is still the Patriots. Now I get it. The offseason has not been kind to them. Uh, Jared Stidham is obviously their guy going forward. They're committed to him. They've had their opportunity to go get guys like Jordan Love, Andy Dalton, uh, Teddy Bridgewater, Jameis Winston, and they passed on everybody. They are committed to Jared Stidham. And again, they drafted him for a reason. They saw something in him that they liked a year ago, and Jared Stidham looks like he's going to be the guy going forward in New England. Plus, you have Bill Belichick. I mean, I just, 
you can never count him out. And I'm not ready to say that New England is going to be dethroned as kings of the AFC East either, but any time that you have a Bill Belichick coach team, to me, they have a shot at going to the Super Bowl. Any time Belichick is coaching the team, they have a shot at getting to the Super Bowl. Now, I get it. Their offseason hasn't been great. They did not address um, maybe their biggest weakness, which was at the wide receiver position. You know, I don't think quarterback was their biggest weakness. Stidham, under Belichick, I think is going to be fine. But like the Packers, wide receiver is a need for them. Outside of Edelman, there's not a lot there. And they were one of two teams, the other being the Packers, that passed on getting a wide receiver in the most loaded wide receiver draft in NFL history. So for that reason, I get it. You might not put New England in the top ten, but don't ever count out a Bill Belichick coach team. They are always going to be right there in the precipice of making something special happen. And, man, I'm, I'm not ready to say that the Patriots could not go to the Super Bowl next year, even without Tom Brady. I tell you what, that does it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm glad to have you along as we make it through this. And, uh, man, I, I tell you what, we are doing our darndest and getting through this day by day. Hope that you're staying safe, staying well, and being smart. And thanks again for listening to ESPN-UP. I'm Tanner Hoops, and I'm back on tomorrow, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. It's my hope that you join me. Until then, have a taco. Celebrate Cinco de Mayo the right way. Enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy it safely. I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN-UP WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.